Hello again, everybody. This is uh, Jason Powers. Recently, uh, Tucker Carlson told us he was being spied on by the NSA. The NSA is a bastard child of the real starter of a host of intrigues that one personally is still coming to grips with, the CIA. Started after World War II and supplanting the OSS, this entity has been a lightning rod of discussion. Do they really control us, the world? Did they just do a color coup on U.S. soil in 2020? Or are they bumbling fools for the former KGB? Alan Dulles was key to a host of long-standing organizations and certainly had some chances to cross paths with Edward Bernays, the master of propaganda, as well. George Herbert Walker Bush completed this circle of power that has destroyed the rights and liberties of the U.S. citizens in the hopes of becoming, of all things, China. Hello again. So uh, today this is probably going to be a long episode. We'll we'll see how how tightly I can push this together because there's a lot of things to go over. So we're going to start off with uh, Tucker Carlson, who uh, happened to be, uh, I guess you could say, the object of uh, of um, an NSA um, information grab as far as uh, tied to his emails. At least according to him, and based upon his reporting, obviously he was he was well aware that they knew stuff that uh, no one should know because of the emails that he was having and conversations he was involved in. And it just so happens that um, we're going to discuss a an email cache from um, from one Hunter Biden that uh, Tucker Carlson um, Tucker knows uh, Mr. Biden really well, at least enough well enough to. Email back and forth several uh, several times from 2014 through 2015. So this is from Tucker Carlson. Uh, it's a its subject is called uh, "Responding Thanks, November 13th, 2014, at 10:27 a.m. to Hunter Biden." Of course, getting on a plane now, but I'll ask Susie to send it right away. Thanks again. It's really nice of you to do this. And on November 13th at 10:09, so. 18 minutes earlier, Hunter Biden wrote, Hey, buddy, I need Buckley's CV if you have one handy. Thanks, uh, RHB. So, and then on, this was according, uh, this the day before at 4.41 uh, p.m., Tucker wrote, Hunter, I can't thank you enough for writing that letter to Georgetown on Buckley's behalf. So nice of you to know. I know it, it will help. 
hope you hope you're great and we can all get together we can all get dinner soon so this is from tucker carlson so georgetown home of the cia's uh grooming ground so to speak um that's where they run through and buckley who must be obviously uh, tucker's uh son or uh, i'm just presuming that um but i you know because i haven't done a deep dig on uh hunter on uh tucker carlson other than i know he's his wife is tied to the swanson uh, i think it's swanson um uh, empire so he's he's well he's got a very good um uh, good gig going on fox he has for a long time He's been in the business for at least 22, 23 years. I remember seeing him in the 1990s when he was a young upstart. I think on um, he was on the typical cable networks, which is part and partial to his job. So you'll say, oh, well, what's the big deal? That's just one one email. Well, there's other emails, and uh, this was from November 11th. Uh, I'm not going to go into the whole thing, but, you know, he, he talked about the his... Um, Susie Carlson was uh, writing to Hunter Biden. So Susie, not only just Tucker, but his wife, Susie, was uh, writing about Georgetown and, you know, giving a background on his on his uh, course studies and what he got on the SAT about getting a perfect score on the critical reading section, et cetera, et cetera. So the point is, is uh, they have a long they, they know each other and they've known each other for a long time. So. I don't think this is any news. It shouldn't be any news to people, but it is news with regards to where we're at in in this particular day and age. So August 28th of 2015, this is tied to uh, something a little bit more, um, I guess you could say salacious or or tied to Hunter Biden and his uh, his uh, uh, situations with, I think, the uh, outlet called Pornhub. Uh, having an account there, or having, uh, this was reported, I think, by the Daily Mail. So, Tucker Carlson wrote to, the subject says, responding, call me please, August 28, 2015, at 4.44 a.m. So, he answers his email, he does his email early in the morning, obviously this could be anything, but, are you kidding? I'm glad you called. Why they did what? What they did was repulsive and immoral, and I hope I, I, hope I wreck their day. I certainly try to fuck them. Let me know if there's any way we can help. So on the 28th at 12, uh, 1228 a.m., Hunter Biden or his account wrote, I'm sorry for even calling you. I know I put you in a difficult position. And upon reflection, as you're, you're a friend, I should have never done that. I was just I was just so upset that they went to my house and confronted Finnegan. I've been in Delaware the last two months sleeping in my nephew's bed, and it's hard to even get up in the morning sometimes. Eric provided all the information on the background that proves this was not me, not my IP address, not my credit card number, not my birth date, but they still come anyway. I can take the hit. I'll be fine. But the notion that under any circumstances, when ordered to by an editor or not someone, would confront my 16-year-old daughter at my home is just wrong. So it may not have been tied to porn. It might be tied to some other allegations that uh, I won't get into because I don't know what they are. Sorry. But then, nevertheless, what it is is Hunter's looking for coverage for or, uh, cover and help and assistance from Tucker Carlson. So... 
what is interesting is Tucker Carlson broke the story last fall about uh, uh, Tony Bobolinsky and his interactions with uh, Hunter Biden and the Biden family, I think going back through 2017, 2018 in regards to Chinese deals or China deals and deals in general that uh, Tony and him had made across the board. I think it was even they had met in Italy, they met in the Eastern Europe, those kind of situations. So, and we know Hunter Biden's been involved in Ukraine, and we know he's been involved in China, and he has a, a entity, uh, Bohai Harvest. He's been involved with, uh, um, was it uh, Seneca, Rosemont Seneca Investments, which is a, a co-partner with uh, other entities that happen to be tied to the CCP. So... What we're getting at here is that there's a host of uh, host of situations. So, for example, Hunter Biden, and this was he mailed to Lars Bunch, and uh, he real it did this, and this was October 21st of 2010. So, this is a long-standing operation and in 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 situation with Hunter in respects to uh, Tucker Carlson. It says I'll sort them out by the weekend and add names are Hunter Biden. So on October 21st at 4.50 p.m., Lars, uh, Lard Bunch uh, wrote, Hunter, can you tell me if any of these folks would be worth getting involved to fill in equity spots or just funding mem- funding members after we, clo- after we close? Thanks. And he lists off a bunch of names, and amongst those names is uh, Tucker and Susie Carlson. So in other words, they're very close friends. They, there's, they, they kick around. They've been kicked around in terms of investment grouping, and this was going back 11 years ago. Now I know Tucker can be a very, it could have changed his point of view on uh, Biden, but it is quite entertaining that when uh, Tucker came out with those that story last October, uh, that now he is an object of investigation or object, or let's just say tangentially involved in an NSA sweep up. It shows you kind of where where we are in this country and where where people are uh, retaliating. And it just so happens the other night, or probably just last night, was uh, Tucker went back onto the Hunter Biden uh, situation and the Biden family uh, in in general. So, thus, of course, reporting you know a whole host of things. And what does this got to do with the CIA? I'm sure, sure wondering by now. Well, with the CIA, you know. The organization has always been in, in the in in the gathering of intelligence, ostensibly abroad, but now it seems like uh, their tricks of the trade have been brought home to roost in our country, um, as far as I'm concerned. So the, there's an American mind piece I just uh, uh, came in contact recently, and I think there's a, a, a snippet from it that kind of leads to where I want to go to next. So I'm going to read just a, a, a short a short snippet from it. Cities across this country are plagued with stomach-churning random assaults and open-air drug bazaars to such a degree that Democrats' traditional media apologists are nervously signaling they cannot furnish effective propaganda to stave off a political backlash. Microchip shortages are rolling auto manufacturing and necessitating layoffs. In the face of record drug overdose deaths, uh, overdose deaths Let me spit that out. His administration is offering subsidized drug paraphernalia to facilitate addicts' injection of deadly narcotics. As the border crisis continues, the federal government rewards illegal border crossers with taxpayer-funded plane tickets to destinations across the country. 
Meanwhile, for citizens, the Biden administration is fixated on maximi maximizing extractive, uh, redistributive, and vengeful policies to address, address abstractions such as climate change, systematic racism, and the intelligence community latest absurd fiction designed to increase their budget, terrorism from white supremacy. And that's part of the, the program that gets run on all of us by our intelligence, uh, intelligence apparatus that is uh, t decided that the American people are the problem and not them. It's, you know, it's kind of, uh, this leads to like the Jordan Peterson. Uh, I remember hearing this a few years ago when, when, when something is a problem and everybody d dislikes you and you sit there and say, well, everybody's wrong and I'm not, uh, no, it's just the opposite. You're the problem. And that's the problem with D.C. They're morally corrupt and bankrupt, and they're filled with people who no longer look at us as, as they look at us as people to be lorded over instead of people that they're supposed to provide services to. Um, they have been doing this for a very long time. It's just now so prevalent, uh, so easily obvious to even the, in the most milquetoast intellect uh, that if you don't know by now that you are being suckered by these people and that they're doing this on purpose, um, you need to wake up like really quickly because it's going to become very important. So I'm going to go on to, like I said, I, I wish this was a little bit smoother, but uh, it is what it is. So we're going to play a little snippet from an, a CIA recruitment video. So let me get here. War. War. When I was 17, I quoted Zora Neale Hurston's How It Feels to Be Colored Me in my college application essay. The line that spoke to me stated simply, I am not tragically colored. There is no sorrow dammed up in my soul nor lurking behind my eyes. I do not mind at all. At 17, I had no idea what life would bring, but Zora's sentiment articulated so beautifully how I felt as a daughter of immigrants then and now. Nothing about me was or is tragic. I am perfectly made. I can wax eloquent on complex legal issues in English while also belting Guayaquil de mis amores in Spanish. Wow, what an amazing accent. She's got that down. I can change a diaper with one hand and console a crying toddler with the other. Whose diaper? I'm a woman of color. I am a mom. I am a cisgender millennial who's been diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder. <sighs> I am intersectional. But my existence is not... Look at, look at her shirt. She's got the fist. She's got the, the, the feminist, the, 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 the intersectional feminist stuff going on here. Look, look. A box. This is a CIA ad. Checking exercise. I am a walking declaration. A woman whose inflection does not rise at the end of her sentences, suggesting that a question has been asked. I did not sneak into CIA. My employment was not and is not the result of a fluke or slip through the cracks. I earned my way in. There's a picture of her. So I don't think we need to go any further. There's this was about a three minute snippet from a, a show by Quite Frankly, who's um, he does uh, he's been doing a broadcast for many years now, and he's uh, quite a, uh, quite entertaining as far as I'm concerned. What we can gather from that, and this is not just the CIA, this is also our military. So we are being hijacked as a country. Um, this is very obvious if you have any awareness whatsoever of what you're supposed to be about. It isn't about your outward identity. 
or your identity groupings and categories. Those are all leftist propaganda. Those are all leftist ideas. There's no individualism in that. It, it, the left gathers their they gather their uh, what do you call it their individuality from the the check boxes that they can check off to say that they're special. Um, they don't consider their specialness just by just being a human being and just going through life and and doing the best they can. They're wrapped up in their identity. And and the funny thing is, is they 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 think of liberty. And they think of being patriotic as being, uh, they think those things are bad ideas or bad symbolisms or bad uh, uh, things to be uh, identified with. Um, you notice there was no mention of how how important it is to become a, uh, you know, uh, being a patriotic server of the CIA. It's all about, oh, I have all these problems, I have all these identities, and I can wax eloquently and and talk in legal terms and, and stuff like that. It's all about showing off. It's all about pure narcissism, which probably it shouldn't surprise anybody because that's probably what you could think is Alan, Alan Dellis's, um, who is the, probably the chief orchestrator of that particular concept. So we're going to switch gears here to another um, fantastic, I think, uh, researcher. And this is from about six years ago. Um, this is Meet Alan Dulles, uh, fascist spy master. This is from the Corbett Report. So I'm going to play a few snippets in it, and then we'll go from there. You're listening to the Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Mr. Dulles, I know you've heard this many times, that there are people who say that we with regard to the CIA, are waging a secret war with an invisible government. We are obviously engaged in many facets of what is generally called the Cold War, uh, which uh, the communist policy is forced upon us. No use denying that. That's, that's a fact of life. But may I say this, and I do it with all solemnity, at no time has the CIA engaged in any political activity or any intelligence activity that was not approved at the highest level. But what is the highest level of power? That might be the operative question. Well, welcome to the program, folks. This is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Coming to you on August 30th, 2015, with episode 307 of the Corbett Report podcast, Meet Alan Dulles, fascist spymaster. And the real question might be, who was Alan Dulles? A diplomat? A lawyer? A spymaster? A serial philanderer? Well, all of those things, I think quite famously, but many shadier things besides, as we will start to explore in this edition of the podcast and yes, if we want to answer that question of who Alan Dulles was, I think we have to go beyond just the titles and the, the, the roles that he played uh, in the overt political sphere and look more at that higher level of power that he refers to, uh, that he was under as director of central intelligence. And I think we can see at least a glimpse into what that higher level of power is, the, the real head of the secret government, as it were. Uh, by looking at Dulles himself and his own biography, where he perfectly represents 
the combination of Wall Street lawyer and American intelligence that formed the nucleus of the CIA, at least there in its early years. People these days talk about uh, a group like Kroll being the kind of CIA for the for Wall Street. Well, the CIA was the CIA for Wall Street long before then, and uh, Dulles represents that perfectly in his biography, as we shall see. But I think one good way of framing this whole idea and understanding who Dulles really was is to look even at the most mainstream of mainstream commentators on Dulles and his legacy in our current day and age. For example, Stephen Kinzer, who recently wrote a book about the Dulles brothers and their effect on shaping American foreign policy and really the overt and covert foreign policy of the United States in the 1950s when they reigned simultaneously as Alan Dulles, Director of Central Intelligence, and John Foster Dulles, Secretary of State, having a remarkable degree of power uh, that they wielded very much for their own personal benefit and the benefit of their cronies, again, as we shall see. But Stephen Kinzer, again, a very mainstream commentator, foreign, f former foreign correspondent for the New York Times and a writer of mainstream uh, biographies, uh, he, I think, encapsulates this quite well when he says that Alan Dulles was the ambassador of the secret government to the overt government, which I think is a good way of putting it. I think that's, uh, that, that is one of the main roles that he, he played there in the 1950s as director of central intelligence. But then again, we don't want to rely too much on the mainstream commentators on uh, the Alan, for the Alan Dulles biography or the, uh, the real meaning of the Dulles legacy, because... Well, they tend to say things like this. The notion of the CIA as a secret government or as a rogue elephant really is not borne out by, by the histories that we can now see as documents are released. The political leadership, first Harry Truman and the Truman administration, where it all got started, remember, then Eisenhower and his administration, Kennedy, etc., etc. The political leadership has always called the tune for what the agency would do. If sometimes enthusiasts within the agency tried to, to, to get away with something, as they did, they were dealt with with relative promptness. I think Alan Dulles has to be given the credit for establishing that tradition of responsible, uh, uh, relatively competent uh, actions and mechanisms to carry out government policy. So... We're going to skip ahead here for a couple minutes. Um, and this is interesting. Um, this is kind of like a montage uh, reel of situations. But going back to that particular segment, as you can tell, there are many, many aspects to the CIA that has, you know, been portrayed, perpetrated. I've read other instances where uh, former KGB operatives have always thought the Americans were too smug and too... Um, too arrogant by one half and they didn't know half of what they, they thought they did uh, in regards to what was going on and based upon current situations it's pretty it's pretty telling that our uh, our intelligence community has uh, given up trying to protect us uh, from outside influences foreign influences in particular especially in the on the Chinese axis because 
Uh, they've infiltrated so far that we now have a CIA director, and I think in Bill Burns, who uh, was involved with and tied to uh, foundations that were supported by the CCP. So that's quite a, uh, an, uh, quite an interjection into our uh, society that our own uh, our, our entire DC apparatus now is almost embedded in a co-partnership with the Chinese Communist Party, which has exacted such a toll on humanity that eventually they're going uh, there's going to have to be some uh, let's just say um, resolution to the problem in one way or another. Uh, this isn't this isn't something that this is just starting. By the way, um, we're in the Nazi Germany stage in the 1930s. We're right around the 1935-1936 era, but it changes from day to day. Uh, this is going to accelerate, and by that I mean, so they've assumed power, the CCP, and I'm using that as an example because. Uh, they're coming up on uh, we're coming up on an Olympics, which 1936 was the German the Olympics where Germany it happened in uh, Berlin, and the CCP is getting uh, ramped up for their hundred. They just had their hundredth uh, anniversary, uh, the 1921 uh, communist uh, uh, origination of their their uh, ideology. So we'll we'll go ahead and play this clip going going forward. This is mouth, <laughs> as it were. Uh, we're going to read from the introduction here of this book, or the uh, the preface actually, where Alan Dulles is writing about his early life. Quote: My interest in world affairs started early. In fact, it goes back to my childhood days. I was brought up on the stories of my paternal grandfather's voyage of 131 days in a sailing vessel from Boston to Madras, India, where he was a missionary. He was almost shipwrecked on the way. In my youth, I was often in Washington with my maternal grandparents. My grandfather, John W. Foster, had been Secretary of State in 1892 under President Harrison. After serving in the Civil War, he had become a general and had later been American minister to Mexico, to Russia, and then to Spain. My mother had spent much of her youth in the capitals of these countries. My father had studied abroad. I grew up in the atmosphere of family debates on what was going on in the world. My earliest recollections are of the Spanish and Boer Wars. In 1901, at the age of eight, I was an avid listener as my grandfather and his son-in-law, Robert Lansing, who was to, to become Secretary of State under President Woodrow Wilson, hotly discussed the merits of the British and Boer causes. I wrote out my own views, vigorous and misspelled, which were discovered by my elders and published as a little booklet. It became a bestseller in the Washington area. I was for the underdog. After graduating from college a few months before the outbreak of World War I in 1914, sharing the general ignorance about the dramatic events that lay ahead, I worked my way around the world, teaching school in India and then China, and traveling widely in the Far East. I returned to the United States in 1915, and a year before our entry into the war, I became a member of the diplomatic service. During the next ten years, I served in a series of fascinating posts— First in Austria-Hungary, where in 1916-1917 I saw the beginnings of the breakup of the Habsburg mon monarchy. Then in Switzerland during the war days, I gathered intelligence on what was going on behind the fighting front in Germany, Austria-Hungary, and the Balkans. I was, in fact, an intelligence officer rather than a diplomat. Assigned to the Paris Peace Conference in 1919 for the Versailles Treaty negotiations, I helped draw the frontiers of the new Czechoslovakia, worked on the problems created for the West by the Bolshevik Revolution of 1917, and helped on the peace settlement in Central Europe. 
When the conference closed, I was one of those who opened our first post-war mission in Berlin in 1920, and after a tour of duty at Constantinople, I served four years as chief of the Near East Division of the State Department. By that time, 1926, although I had still not exhausted my curiosity about the world, I had exhausted my exchequer and turned to the practice of the law with the New York law firm of which my brother was the senior partner. This practice was interrupted for periods of government service in the late 20s and early 30s as legal advisor to our delegations at the League of Nations conferences on arms limitations. In connection with this work, I met Hitler, Mussolini, Litvinov, and the leaders of Britain and France. End quote. So as you can tell, there's a, there's a lot to unpack there with his early uh, biography in uh, Alan Dulles. So as you can tell, he... He was quite enamored with the idea of uh, global intrigues and being an intelligence asset. Uh, he was at the Treaty of Versailles, which also happened to be a place where uh, Edward Bernays happened to land down at um, in um, in the in the negotiations. Uh, he was attached to the Wilson administration, so you can see where some of this problem originates, at least in the in the the what you call it the public regulations and propaganda industry that was started by essentially these two people uh one one in the i guess you could call it the the commercial side with bernays with um torches of freedom and and then later on he was he was deployed in a, a cia propaganda campaign in the 1950s it's hard to not imagine that these two two men uh, met each other in that during that time frame in the in the, in the late 19s the 1910s and then later on uh, I worked with them obviously that's just it goes without saying but uh, it was uh, Bernays who created the, the term public relations and of course the the CFR the Council on Foreign Relations is is a big aspect of what became uh, the Dulles and and also the U.S. apparatus that has a uh, uh, been, um, I guess you could say, infiltrated by a host of media outlets. Uh, when I say infiltrated, uh, they're all a part of it. Uh, matter of fact, uh, Julian Assange put together a nice little chart, and I think it. Well, I don't think it was just him, but a number of people. Uh, I'll find that chart and uh, drop it in the description. So we're going to go on from there because th what this is is kind of a historical review before we get to the money shot. I think, as far as where we're heading. So we'll go from there. Well, that at least gives us some of the early background of Alan Dulles. And, well, let's see what it is that we can glean from this. First of all, he mentions that he was attending the 1919 Paris uh, Peace Treaty, Versailles Treaty negotiations uh, for the American delegation. And specifically is in his role, as he puts it, as a intelligence officer, not a diplomat, the uh, diplomat being really the cover for the works that he was doing first in Austria-Hungary during the war and then in Paris uh, as part of the peace uh, delegation, peace delegation. But attentive listeners, and I'm sure corporate reporters will already know that, of course, the 1919 uh, Versailles Treaty negotiations saw 
the uh, the birth, the, a cadre of people giving birth to what was the Royal Institute of International Affairs and what was to become its sister organization in the United States, the Council on Foreign Relations. And the question is, so is uh, was Alan Dulles tied in with that group? And did he have relations with the Council on Foreign Relations? Well, you bet your life he did. Uh, we can glean that from a completely different book. Uh, this is, of course, The Shadows of Power by our good friend James Perloff, who we've interviewed a number of times here on the podcast, including specifically about this book. And on page 104, he talks a little bit about Alan Dulles' brother, John Foster Dulles' connections to the Council on Foreign Relations, and also Alan Dulles' own connections. Quote, winding up as Secretary of State was John Foster Dulles. Dulles had been one of Woodrow Wilson's young protégés at the Paris Peace Conference. A founding member of the CFR, he had contributed articles to foreign affairs since its first issue. He was an in-law of the Rockefellers and chairman of the board of the Rockefeller Foundation. He was also board chairman of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, where his choice for president of that body had been Alger Hiss. An inveterate internationalist, he had been a delegate to the founding UN conference, also a member of Truman's State Department. He had none of the earmarks one would expect of a Republican. Nevertheless, before the election, he began to parrot conservative slogans just as Eisenhower did. So great was the disparity between Dulles's words and his personal reality that one of the, his biographies was entitled The Actor. For CIA director, Ike selected Alan Dulles, John Foster's brother. He too had been at the Paris Peace Conference. He joined the CFR in 1926 and later became its president. All right, interesting little nuggets there. Uh, thank you, James Perloff. So... Let's let's step back a moment. What do we have so far? Uh, elite p political pedigree, including a uncle and a grandfather, both of whom were secretaries of state, and hobnobbing in his youth uh, via his family connections with people like Woodrow Wilson and Andrew Carnegie. Check. Uh, Rockefeller in-law, by way of his uh, brother. Check. Uh, globalist CFR jet-setting stooge. Check. Uh, part of the invisible government, uh, secret uh, intelligence apparatus, check. Wall Street lawyer, check. Uh, this is an interesting start, but what does this add up to, you're saying to yourself? So there was another insider, crony, connected political uh, elite person with an uh, part of the intelligence apparatus and half a century ago or more at this point. So what? Who cares? What does this have to do with us here today? All of the oil in Iran, thanks to a corrupt deal that had been reached with a former monarch, was 100% owned by one company, and that company was British and owned mainly by the British government. What it meant was that Britain, through the ownership of this one company, controlled all the discovery, all the refining, all the production, and all the sales of all the oil in Iran. In the period after World War II, there was a great popular sentiment in Iran, let's nationalize our oil industry. Let's take it back from this British company. And the parliament passed a law to that effect, unanimously, and the elected leader who was charged to carry out this law was Mohammad Mossadegh. So Mossadegh became the prime minister of Iran who was leading the nationalistic campaign 
campaign to take back control of the Iranian oil industry. That got the British hugely upset through a long series of machinations. They brought the Americans into the project, and in the summer of 1953, the CIA sent an agent into Iran who, in the space of just a few weeks, threw the country into chaos and secured the overthrow of the democratically elected leader, Mohammad Mossadegh. So you catch all that. So we essentially uh, messed around with Iran because they nationalized their they nationalized their oil because they wanted they wanted back their they wanted back their resources. In some respects, you could say that's the same kind of uh, narrative with the United States that we wanted our resources back. We want our country back. We don't want to be beholden to China, and Trump was working towards that. Now, did Trump? Do everything he was supposed to do? Of course not. He's one person, and got and, and he couldn't obviously nationalize anything. So the idea was to bring jobs back to the United States. Well, our globalist, the globalist uh, uh, machine, is much like the British Empire was at that particular point. The, the British Empire was reeling from World War Two. They were reeling from the fact that they lost their empire. They were reeling from the fact that the United States supplanted them as the world leader, and the the United, UK had been at loggerheads with the United States since obviously since the founding uh, they tried to subvert the United States of America during the Civil War uh, the globalist uh, aspects of the South were involved with that with the international trade organizations that were set up and in, in the slavery that was going uh, you know the, the cotton the whole nine yards I, I'm not going to pretend I know all about that but I do know that there was a a substantial amount of uh, business entities that the the UK was using to manipulate that particular uh, war the way they wanted it to be manipulated. They wanted to break apart the United States. So their alliances were with the South. Um, so, but uh, more to the point, uh, one name that wasn't mentioned in that is, and has come through history is a, a cousin of the Roosevelt's. Uh, Kermit Roosevelt was involved with that uh, plot uh, on Iran. So, thus, Roosevelt's have probably involved themselves in many things that we probably are not very up to speed on, including the concentration uh, camps uh, regarding the Japanese uh, internment of citizens uh, by Franklin. So... There's a host of intrigues that probably always have gone on and will continue to go on. So we're going to play a little, a uh, few more. There's a couple more minutes here and then we'll move on. Mala, a genuine banana republic, is dominated by a giant American company. United Fruit not only controls the fruit industry, but also the railroads, the telephone system, even the delivery of mail. Elected President Jacobo Arbenz promises agrarian reform and to break United Fruit's monopoly. United Fruit appeals to Secretary of State John Foster Dulles, at one time the company's legal counsel. He agrees to help and rid Guatemala of a president he considers communist. His brother, CIA Director Alan Dulles, a United Fruit stockholder and once a member of its board of directors, is given the go-ahead. The CIA gives its plan the code name Operation Success. The coup attempt will depend on a handful of soldiers, a small air force, and the massive use of psychological warfare 
September 1946. It's been little more than a year since former Nazi General Reinhard Galen began working secretly for the United States. By now, former Nazi scientists and engineers have also been brought to the U.S. and put on the government payroll. It's a top-secret operation run by the Joint Chiefs of Staff under the codename Paperclip. In the wake of World War II, the U.S. government is engaged in a large number of secret medical experiments designed to help win the Cold War. Developing techniques for mind control to create a so-called Manchurian candidate. The director of central intelligence in April of 1953, Alan Dulles, gave a talk in which he said that we were in a battle for the control of men's minds, that's his term, and that we were losing the battle. Dulles wastes no time in signing a secret executive order creating Project MK Ultra. The goal, to leave no stone unturned in the area of mind and behavior control. Alan Dulles pinpoints Cuba for his most ambitious attempt to eliminate a foreign leader, Fidel Castro. Castro nationalizes American property in Cuba and offers to pay for it with nearly worthless Cuban bonds. The U.S. rejects his offer. Castro refuses to negotiate. In Guatemala, the CIA trains a Cuban exile force of 1,500 men. This tiny army, the 2506 Brigade, is expected to invade Cuba, hold the beachhead for 72 hours, and wait for a popular uprising against Castro. Success will depend on American air support. April 17th, the invasion force reaches its destination, the Bay of Pigs. Cuban people do not rise up against Castro as expected. The Cuban army does not defect. Outnumbered and outgunned, Brigade 2506 is doomed. So there is the brief summarization of uh, CIA operations as, as of around 1963. So this is from a book uh, by a guy named Tarpley, Webster G. Tarpley, who is not a Trump fan in any way, shape, or form. Matter of fact, he's latest tweet, so he uses Twitter a lot. So guess what? He that's hashtag Trump organization faces grim financial future, quite uh, quite apart from further judicial proceedings. Issue centered on the twelfth count, charging falsifying business record first degree, which can destroy confidence of remaining creditors. So that's his latest tweet. But I'm reading a chapter. I'm going to read a bit from a chapter called uh, CIA Director. This is tied to the unauthorized biography of George Bush. Now, all he, all Mr. Tarpley does is write, you know, he, he takedowns of everybody who, uh, anybody who runs for office. So he's, if you looked at his, I'll go through his, uh, he calls it a, he writes for an outlet called the Progressive Press. So that should tell you where he, where his, uh, um, I guess you could call it his uh, feelings lie. So he's got Just Too Weird, which is about Mitt Romney, George Bush, 9-11 Synthetic Terror, uh, Barack H., uh, H. Obama, the Unauthorized Biography, Obama, the Postmodern Coup. Uh, he's got Obama. He's got a lot of different uh, ones listed here on Obama. And he's got a, even a title on the CIA. So, anyway, we'll go back to... 
So I assume he's probably done a lot of good work on take that. Sometimes you're even people who you totally would disagree with intellectually uh, can do very good work on certain aspects of uh, a situation, especially ostensibly if they're just reporting what what is actually uh, citable. So this this is about this is only about three or four paragraphs, but it it, it mentions the names it names the names. While the Rockefeller Commission was a tightly controlled vehicle of the Eastern Anglophile Liberal Establishment, congressional investigative committees were impaneled during 1975, whose proceedings were somewhat less rigidly controlled. These include the Senate's Intelligence Committee, known as the Church Committee, and the corresponding House Committee, first chaired by uh, Representative Lucien Nedzi, who previously chaired one of the principal Watergate-era probes, and then after July, by Representative Otis Pike. One example was the Pike's Commission's issuance of a contempt of Congress citation against Henry Kissinger for his refusal to provide documentation of covert operations in November 1975, another was Church's role in leading the opposition to the Bush nomination. The Church Committee launched an investigation of the use of covert operations for the purpose of assassinating foreign leaders. By the nature of things, this probe was, lead, uh, was, was led to grapple with the pro- problem of whether covert operations sanctioned to eliminate foreign leaders had been retargeted against domestic political figures. The obvious case was the Kennedy assassination. Church was especially diligent in attacking CIA covert operations, which Bush would be anxious to defend. The CIA's covert branch, Church thought, was a self-serving apparatus. It's a bureaucracy which feeds on itself, and those involved are constantly sitting around thinking up schemes for quote-unquote foreign intervention, which will win them promotions and justify further additions to the staff. It self-generates interventions that otherwise never would be thought of, let alone authorized. It will be seen that at the beginning of Bush's tenure at the CIA, the congressional committees were on the offensive against the intelligence agencies. By the time that Bush departed Langley, the tables were turned, and it was Congress which was the focus of the scandals, including Koreagate. Soon thereafter, the Congress would undergo the uh, undergo the assault of Abscam. So, and then later on here, a little bit further down, so... Preparation for what was to become the Halloween Massacre began in Ford White House during the summer of 1975. The Ford Library in Ann Arbor, Michigan, preserved a memo from Donald Rumsfeld, who is a two-time Secretary of State who just passed away recently at 88 years old, uh, to Ford dated at July 10th of 1975, which deals with an array of possible choices for the CIA director. Rumsfeld had a poll of a number of White House and administration officials and asked them to express preferences among outsiders to the CIA. And so the the poll was Henry Kissinger, who was suggest, uh, the poll by uh, Cheney was Henry Kissinger, who suggested C. Douglas Dillon, Howard Baker, Galvin, and Robert Rusa. Dick Cheney of the White House staff proposed Robert Bork, who we know from the his uh, takedown at the SCOTUS, and Bush, and then Lee Iacocca, of all things. Nelson Rockefeller was also for C. Uh, Douglas Dillon, and then there's a host of other names here. 
what 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 I'm getting at is the same. Pe- a lot of the same people have always been interfering in our politics. They're all connected, very high up, and they've been around for many years. They pull the strings. It's almost like, really, the stepping stones of power and in government lead to uh, uh, post-administration dealings where they are still uh, controlling and or mentoring uh, the people that are in charge. So. The people that are currently our prior presidents, I think, ostensibly in my my viewpoint, uh, Obama, Bush, Clintons, they're all involved in, in destroying this country. Uh, their agency leftovers are still running this country into the ground, uh, mainly to, 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 to satisfy their need to get their, their gut cut and their fair share. They're the ones that set up the apparatus that... Uh, is uh, fueling China's dominance. I mean, they were the ones who got us into the World Trade Organization. Uh, Clinton uh, was the one who decoupled human rights from from trading uh, trading agreements. Uh, George Herbert was in in office when they signed the D- WTO in two thousand one. Um, Obama and Bush they ramped up the the def- or the trade deficit between our countries. Uh, exporting or making deals with uh, uh, big business to move their manufacturing offshore, which gutted our uh, jobs and our, the, basically our manufacturing sector so that we get 90% or it's 90% or more of our medical supplies from China. And China has no standards, no quality control. They, they, they employ slave labor. I know many of them will show will harken back to our 1880s viewpoint on labor. You know the concrete jungle kind of Upton Sinclair kind of a vision of what America was then. It also was a very different time. This is modern. This is Moderna or modernity, and not not uh, the the beginnings of the industrialization and the Enlightenment. You know, if China thinks that using that is a, a ploy, and this is where. Most of the the revisionist history is to to look at things through to not look at history going uh, starting from its uh, its onset and going through it. It's looking backwards through a lens. It's very easy to go from 2020 and look back at 1880s and say, "Oh, terrible!" You know, the United States should have never gotten what it got from whatever. You know, you can use you can use whatever backward logic to to uh, assault and a. Uh, uh, assess the behaviors of those people. I'm worried, more worried about entities that have grown up and matured based upon foundations that were either malevolent or they were they have been long-standing and it's the same players over and over again. That's going on in uh, the C- the CCP uh, the CCP realm, and it's also happening in DC. So. To go on from there, I'm going to read a, a bit from uh, Nora uh, Bin Laden. Um, obviously, you can know from the name that she's uh, related to Osama Bin Laden, but she's very much uh, <laughs> against that whole ideology. So she writes, I'm going to just read two paragraphs from uh, a piece that she wrote uh, called The Letter. The question is, how did we get to this point? They want you to believe that this is a, this is a recent phenomenon. The truth is the undoing of America has been decades in the making. The globalists, deep state, swamp, whichever name you call them, have been hard at work to weaken American sovereignty and standing as a world leader. 
intent on erecting a new system of world governance where they would be in total control, they are seeking to undermine the fundamental principle of your country, a government for the people, by the people, and replacing instead with a world order of international institutions ultimately puppeteered by a caste of technocrats, oligarchs, and international bankers. Though your constitution stands firmly in their way, it never deterred them. Like a Trojan horse, they infiltrated governmental and intelligence agencies in all realms of society, education, media, entertainment, culture. At their disposal, tools of mass population influence, propaganda, fake news, and censorship. By pushing their Marxist-Socialist progressive agenda for years, they set out to destroy your fundamental values and divide you. They negated God, dissolved the family unit, and dis dissevered us from moral objecti objectivity, effectively leaving a vacuum of degeneracy, cognitive dissonance, and absurdity in its wake. Yuri Bezmenov tried to warn us. This social engineering operation took place as we were lulled into a sense of comfort and complacency due to the modernity's technological progress and liberalism's appeal. In reality, we are being driven further down a path of enslavement while they solidified their plans for a covert power grab. End of quote. Um, I think she wrote an excellent two paragraphs there that I, I would put up against anybody's uh, a summarization of this. So, to prove part of that point, this, is, uh, this was uh, released in 2020 from uh, James Corbett, and I'm going to play it, and then we'll go from there. Welcome, friends. James Corbett here, CorbettReport.com. You're tuned into Propaganda Watch, that weekly series where we examine the propaganda narratives being perpetuated by the deep state and its media allies. And we also examine that propaganda for not just its message, but also how it is propagated and how it shapes public opinion. And this week, we have an extra special treat. During the course of some of my recent research, I stumbled across an article from the New York Times from December 26th of 1977 titled Worldwide Propaganda Network, Built by the CIA. And as you can imagine from that headline, this purports to be a the culmination of months of research by a team of New York Times reporters on a worldwide propaganda network built by the CIA. And if that seems interesting that that's being reported on in the New York Times, I think it is as well. And although... Of course, we can self-evidently see this for a limited hangout that covers up as much as it is revealing, but it still reveals some about this propaganda network and the way the CIA's propaganda functions. So I think it is worth going through and highlighting at least some of this material. Uh, the entire article is up on NewYorkTimes.com, but up behind the paywall. But luckily, the Harold Weisberg Archive uh, digital collection at jfk.hood.edu, which I'm sure is a resource that will be familiar to JFK researchers, does have a PDF version of if not the entire series, at least a good portion of it. Unfortunately, the last page seems to be a repeat of the second page, so I think there is some material missing from this reprint, but it does give you a pretty good view of what they're talking about here. You might have referred to it, uh, you might have heard this referred to as the Mighty Wurlitzer or Wisner's Wurlitzer, um, but this goes into some degree of explanation as to what that was and what it consisted of, and it starts with a little 
uh, a, a little example of some of the information they uncovered, talking about John Kenneth Galbraith, who in 1961 uh, took up a post as American ambassador to India and immediately discovered a rag of ill repute, a horrible political jur- journal that he said was uh, it wasn't even so offensive for its political views as its butchery of the English language, its literary offenses. <laughs> but then he discovered it was a CIA-funded uh, operation, and then he worked with the CIA to get it shut down. At least that's the story that they open with. But then it goes on to detail a little, a little bit more about the scope of this operation that was not just about one political rag in India. It was much deeper than that. It goes on to say, although the CIA has employed dozens of American journalists working abroad, a three-month inquiry by a team of reporters and researchers for the New York Times has determined that, with a few notable exceptions, they were not used by the agency to further its worldwide propaganda campaign. So, of course, right off the bat and right putting it there on the table, oh, don't worry, guys, this wasn't used to further (laughs) the CIA's worldwide propaganda campaign, this network of propagandists that we're about to document. It's a strange thing to put right up in front and center, but I think that is the self-evidently obvious limited hangout in this. But it does go on to then to detail and talk in great uh, in great detail and with a lot of um, uh, supporting facts about this propaganda network. It says, in its persistent efforts to shape world opinion, the CIA has been able to call upon a separate and far more extensive network of newspapers, news services, magazines, publishing houses, broadcasting stations, and other entities over which it has at various times had some control. A decade ago, when the agency's communications empire was at its peak, it embraced more than 800 news and public information organizations and individuals. According to one CIA official, they ranged in importance from Radio Free Europe to a third-string guy in Quito who could get something in the local paper. Although the network was known officially as the Propaganda Assets Inventory, to those inside the CIA, it was Wisner's Wurlitzer. Frank G. Wisner, who is now dead, was the first chief of the agency's covert action staff. And then under so that's a su- that's a brief summary, and you can find more on that on his um, on that podcast. Uh, I put a link in the description. So going back to Nor- Nora Bin Laden, she wrote this uh, wrote that particular summary on September sixth of twenty twenty. So this was prior to uh, uh, the the final election. It should be noted that that I note that because it, it, she could see what was coming, uh, what was actually going on, and like many others, we've seen this going on for a long time. So let's finish off with a, a couple uh, things tied to our friends in uh, China. So, for example, I this was a intelligence report that was uh, released. Uh, Director of National Intelligence. This was sent uh, sent to then our National Intelligence uh, agent. Or, um, I can't think of his name right off the top of my head. I can picture him, but I can't remember his name. Uh, so forgive me there. Uh, John Radcliffe is his name. Sorry. So I'm reading this from the PDF that uh, I put a link in the description. I had uh, downloaded this as a three-page summary. But... There was a majority view expressed in this ICA with regard to China's actions to influence the election fall short of a mark for several reasons. Analytic Standard B requires the IC to maintain quote-unquote independence of political considerations. This is particularly important during times when the country is, as Omni Budsman wrote, in a hyper-partisan state. 
However, the Omnibudsman found that, quote, China analysts were hesitant to assess Chinese actions as undue influence or interference. These analysts appeared reluctant to have their analysis on China brought forward because they tended to disagree with the administration's policies, saying in effect, I don't want our intelligence used to support those policies. This behavior would constitute a violation of analytic standard B, independence of political considerations, IRTPA section 1019. Furthermore, an alternative viewpoints on China election influence efforts have not been appropriately tolerated, much less encouraged. In fact, the Omnibudsman found that subject. There were strong efforts to suppress analysis of alternatives, AOA, in the August National Intelligence Council assessment on foreign election influence and the associated IC products, which is in violation of Tradecraft Standard 4 and IRTPA Section 1017. National Intelligence Council, the NIC, officials reported that the Central Intelligence Agency, CIA, officials rejected the NIC coordination comments and tried to downplay alternative analysis in their own production during the drafting of the NICA. And I could go on and on, but I think you get the point of view is that they didn't want their they didn't want their uh, intelligence that they had come up with on China interfering in our election to be used because they didn't agree with the, <laughs> they didn't agree with Trump's uh, uh, policies uh, administrative policies saying in effect I don't want our intelligence used to be support these policies. It's quite entertaining that the CIA thinks that they're so above everything that they don't have to actually provide actual intelligence because they don't agree with the, uh, the administration's policies. Um, they are they are they, that goes back, harkens back to what James Corbett said with the uh, they were talking about the secret government and who who you actually report to. So who does the CIA report to? Obviously, they don't seem to think that they care to care to report to the president. This is where uh, the Chuck Schumer's uh, Six Ways to Sunday quote comes into play. That it, it seems like um, when Trump was uh, elected, the entire intelligence apparatus of the United States of America decided that they no longer have to uh, 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 bend the knee, so to speak, or even report to him in a truthful and lawful manner which is actually against the Constitution, which is actually treason. But, of course, we don't prosecute treason anymore. It is treason because you're disobeying a direct order of the United States, of ele the duly elected president of the United States. And if you're subverting and or otherwise uh, uh, standing in resistance to that order, you are committing uh, violations of the Constitution that are high crimes and misdemeanors. Now, are they... Are they ever going to prosecute any of these people? Of course not. Because these people think they're beholden to nobody. And they obviously are beholden to money because the only people they seem to answer to are Chinese uh, operatives and Chinese influence. We have people sitting on the Intelligence Committee in the House of Representatives, Eric Swalwell, who think that they don't have to be held accountable to anything that goes on. And... This is just, you know, just the way everything has gone on over and over and over again. It's, 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 it's just, it's amazing that we have these kind of people that are involved in this stuff. Um, it's, it's, I can't, I can't see how we uh, 
are we're going to survive if uh, these people can't be brought under uh, what I call brought to heel. So, and, and Newsweek published actually surprisingly enough an article written by um, Ben Wine, Weingarten. He's a fellow at the Claremont Institute. And I'm going to read just a little sample of that. And then we're going to finish up with Charlie Munger, who seems to be very uh, happy to uh, deal with the Chinese. So from Newsweek. Transacting with a, China, with a China in which every citizen and business is ultimately answerable to, the, to a CCP that is the progenitor of these and so many more evils comes with unseen costs. The greatest such cost is the legitimizing, propping up, and empowering of the CCP, which has played on our greed, naivete, and ignorance to build itself up into our most formidable geopolitical foe. It has sought to ensnare us in a bear hug by opening its arms to the West, hoping against hope that we might remain in the embrace upon the point of suffocation. The cost to the CCP of its hundred-year reign of terror ought to be complete and total decoupling by America from every strategically significant economic sector, the systematic alienating of a regime in every international arena, and full-scale information warfare on top of unleashing America's economic and technological capabilities which help underpin our military primacy. But perhaps even more important, as we look towards our celebration of our founding, this, in, this Independence Day, a founding rooted in principles and uh, values and principles that the CCP believes pose an existential threat to its totalitarian regime, is that we quit emulating it and rekindle the American way of life. The weaponization of the state and its private ruling classes auxiliaries against critics the anti-cultural revolution under which we currently labor and the woking of every aspect of society threatened to demoralize, divide, and deconstruct our country. End of quote. And that is, that is at the heart of the matter is that we have too many apparatchiks in our country who are who are beholden to these uh, billionaires? These technocratic uh, these are technocratic minions who live in these big city high rises, and they look down on the people that bring them coffee or make their uh, make sure that they have food. If these cities ever really suffered from, say, for example, food shortages, they would surely feel the pain of that uh, thing because they uh, while they're sitting in their high rises typing on their computer pushing out directives or managing stock exchanges and pushing paper around the world or trading with their co-conspirator across the globe in, in, in uh, the CCP, uh, some Chinese trading house or whatever, they're not doing anything useful or beneficial to society. They think they are. Uh, they think when they make an app and they work with TikTok and and let the Chinese control and influence their every thought and whim. Or the NBA, when you have LeBron James, who who takes a knee and bows before Xi, Xi if he, you know, because he's more worried about his money and he's worried about not offending people. Or you have people that want to tear down our statues while Xi has got a, a celebration of his uh, his dominance over the world, and he's got this great Maoist. Uh, temple and and this whole uh, this uh, program that they put together just recently it, it was quite uh, quite sickening because it was just a representation of what he thinks he is he thinks he's like a demigod of some sort and of course that's that's just part of their he he hagiography that they they put out there for their people 
and their people will submit to that. And their people are not all dumb, but they have no other choices. But one way to uh, to to pull that down is to not be involved with these these gangsters who are trying to buy up all the minerals in the world. They're trying to buy up all the food in the world. They're trying to keep everybody debt trapped. You know, in one fell swoop, you can bring down the entire army that that they have by by uh, nulling and voiding all their contracts around the world, all these international places, and causing them to lash out. As soon as you lashed out, you put them down, because that's exactly what they would do. And when I put them down, I mean put them down, because they they seem to be in on a course to take over this world. And I I'm not asking for war. But unfortunately, the only way you get their attention is if you take away their toys, if you take away their money, if you take away their resources. They're they're going to starve us to death in order to get what they want. So, you know, by turn, you have to do the same thing in in retrospect. You have to use whatever means that are necessary. But we don't have the political will in this country because they're all in bed with them. It's It's so nasty what we've allowed these people to in Washington, D.C. to do. So there's my little rant, and we're going to end here right with a, a last... Uh, this is uh, from Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett. They were uh, talking with Becky Quick, and I'm just going to play about a about a minute or a half or whatever. You, you get a feel for what this person thinks about us as a, as a populace. This is from YouTube, sorry. But do you think that it would take a systemic breakdown before changes would actually get implemented again, like you referenced with the Great Depression? The last time it took the worst depression in the English-speaking world in all history. That's what it took to get the last correction. I certainly don't want that. No, it, a wise it, regulator, it when a wise regulator stops his stuff before it starts... It's very hard to stop. What, it, you know, what interests me in this is that the communist Chinese behave the way... I am talking in favor of, and our own wonderful free enterprise economy is letting all these crazy people go to this gross excess. The, the people who are not avoiding it are the communist Chinese. Oh. They step in preemptively <laughs> to stop speculation. China, you said communist China is doing all the things that we should be doing right now, and I, I can't help but think of what, they're, what well, they've I, done well, to Jack it, Ma. It amuses me, you know. Well, uh, what about what they've done to Jack Ma? He's kind of disappeared. Well, yes, but Jack Ma is one of the swingers. So they just cut his, they said, the hell with you. He basically gave a speech when he said to a a one-party state, well, you guys are a bunch of jerks doing what you're doing, and I know what I'm doing, and I'm going to do it better. And he was going to wade into banking and no rules and just do whatever he pleased. He also brought Chinese. A lot of the Chinese communists did the right thing. They just called it Jack Ma and say, you aren't going to do it, Sonny. And <laughs> so, you know, and I'm no fan of Jack Ma. I mean, he got where he got. I mean, he's a billionaire, and they disappeared him for three months, and then they put him through his re-education propers, and then the, the Chinese Communist Party rolls him back out. Now, what does this all have to do with the finalization of the CIA? Our intelligence agencies have been complicit in the takedown of America in, in summary. I they have they have decided that it wasn't important enough to deal with uh the CCP. Bill Barr in particular, who was a CIA operative in the nineteen seventies and worked for the Bushes and worked for worked directly as the AG under George Herbert Walker Bush, who is 
part and parcel to this entire collapse. Um, he's dead now, but he was he was the progenitor of the New World Order, which was uh, brought together under Kissinger and uh, Brzezinski, who were the Brzezinski was probably the brain trust of that. But Kissinger was the first one to go over to China and talk about uh, opening up. Uh, to them in in regards to why Nixon went to China, and then eventually Carter was the one who who sealed the deal there with Brzezinski in his White House with uh, Carter opening up and, and saying that uh, now we would have normal normalized relations with uh, the mainland China and and kick Taiwan to the curb so to speak. It just it just so happens that Taiwan is the most democratic uh, of the two, obviously, and. It just so happens that Taiwan is, is has a much freer, open, and technologically superior uh, uh, society. 80% of the most advanced chips in the world come from Taiwan. Imagine that. When you allow people to have freedom, they, they, they innovate. Look at China. What do they do? They're not innovative. They steal from everybody. They steal from the United States. They've been stealing from us for decades now. Uh, they they they've infiltrated our institutions of education. They've undermined our educational system while they're stealing us blind. And we have professors here that are so effing evil that they've allowed this to happen because they don't they think oh it's just a collaboration and then they just keep on collaborating with them. They're collaborating with spies. They're so dupable and so suckerable. They don't see the they don't see the end game. They don't see the forest for the uh, for the trees. They're too busy thinking about their little nano project or nanotechnology or or biological project, and, and they think, "Ooh, it's okay to un untap the human genome." And really, <clears throat> what are the Chinese providing as terms of in information to that? They're providing the malevolence. Sure, they they're smart, intelligent uh, Chinese scientists and whatnot. There's plenty of uh, Indian. <laughs> scientists and there's german scientists and there's all kinds of other nationalities around the world the problem is is the chinese scientists are beholden to the ccp they're not here they're not here for luxury they're not here for our luxury they're here to gather intel on us they're here to take things from us they're here to subvert our country while they're at it and they do it in little little uh, uh little uh, tangential ways with the un uh, they with the the sister city uh, program that they've uh, cropped up, and I know this is this this is just disheartening to hear about. But the fact is, is DC is allowed this because they're paid off or they or they're blackmailed, and this is just this is part of the problem. Our intelligence agencies no longer care about us. They they are it's they ran out of they ran out of uh, countries to topple worldwide. So now they're trying to topple the United States to prove that they can do it. I assume I don't know. Uh, I can't I can't understand anybody who 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 grew up in the grew up in the United States who would think this way. But then again, I'm not the ones doing the hiring at the CIA. Who knows how many of those uh, CIA operatives are. Uh, "Quote unquote uh, U.S. born citizens uh, beyond the first generation, you know? Are they, you know? Are they? What generation are they? Because if you're brand new to this country and you already came here with a malevolence in your heart, what better way to tear down the country than to infiltrate it and and then take it over? And of course, they go to the best schools and they're given given access to the best education and given access to the best quote unquote." Uh, uh, top end circles 
and that's why they, that's how this happens. There's no vetting that's going on, and uh, that's the reason why you get people like Charlie Munger, who who thinks it's such a good idea to have the, the CCP uh, financial system. He he mentions later on in this interview, he thinks it's a good idea. There was nothing. There was nothing inherently wrong with our financial system, except for the fact that it's been rigged by uh, these. Uh, corporate fascist at the top that of these billionaires, these oligarchs who think they're beyond reproach. They're probably one of the reasons why, and uh, I've gone on too long, but uh, one of the reasons why they really hated Trump was because he's a billionaire who wasn't supposed to, uh, they, don't want, they don't want anybody to stand out amongst, amongst themselves. They wanted Trump to be, you know, take a back seat and uh, shut his mouth and they didn't like being ruled by a billionaire because he knows all the things that goes on in, in their particular realms and points of view and that probably pisses them off and that's why they they align themselves with the intelligence agencies they align themselves align themselves with people in the house and the senate who who are already dirty as hell trump may never solve any of these problems we need to come to that, come to grips with that. When I say he should, he won't, because he may not never uh, get elected again. But what we should realize is that it's up to us now, as a country, to come up with the solutions to this, which means local involvement in our politics, which means uh, taking back our school boards and our education, becoming better, more astute with our families, uh, bringing back God, not the God of. Uh, not the God of Rome, not the God of uh, the Church of England or whatever. I'm talking about finding God in the Bible, finding finding the, 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 the hope that springs from having faith in something beyond yourself, uh, something that Marxists don't have any faith in. That's why they put their faith in technology and science. And when they call it science, they, they really have a very poor understanding of what science is supposed to be used for and what science is which is for another broadcast and another time I hope you've enjoyed my uh, tour down the CIA memory lane and also uh, the developments as they have come up, come about in today's um, um, situations so God bless the United States of America the country that it should be and not the country that our DC apparatus thinks it should be Thank you very much.